0: This week on Bloodstream, we discuss the unique relationship between chronic disease and exercise as we continue our thoughts about holistic wellness. And we welcome our newly minted Cheat Codes contributor, Delisa O'Brien, to share her thoughts on that as well as on gene therapy and the idea of curative therapies for people with sickle cell
1: can't wait to welcome DeLisa to the team. Then we round out our episode with a fascinating conversation with Lawrence Woolard about the COVID generation using social media for educational purposes and the rise of the e-patient.
2: I normally listen to the pod when I'm doing my sort of like stretching routine before my cycle ride. So next time you record, just think about me stretching my glutes. (laughs) Ah.
0: (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's tempting, but I'm just going to leave it alone. I'm just going to leave it alone.
1: I was about to say, I was like, Lawrence, I, now I'm not going to be able to think of anything else.
0: Hi, all I am your host, Patrick James Lynch.
1: And I am your other host, Amy Board.
0: As always, Amy and I are podcasters.
1: Podcasters, yes. Doctors, no.
0: Still not yet. Anyway, however, we do recommend that you speak to a doctor before making any healthcare decisions.
1: And hey, reminder that you can watch Bloodstream on our Bloodstream Media YouTube channel. Subscribe to Bloodstream on Apple Pods or stream episodes directly from bloodstreammedia.com.
0: As always, thanks for listening, rate, review, and tell a friend. And hey, welcome to Bloodstream. Ms. Bordeaux, big show, lots to get to. We got the Lisa here. We got Lawrence here. Some of my favorite people it's are packed. here. And I that know. includes you. I know, this
1: whole episode is packed.
0: <laughs> um, so Amy, hi, how are hi. you? Hi,
1: I'm well, I'm well. It's almost 90 degrees in Los Angeles. I know,
0: it's, it's like, uh, a bit much.
1: <laughs> it's like, it's a whole new, I mean, we don't really have seasons, but it's like a whole new season. So anyway, that's as I was sitting here being like, how am I? Like today I'm really feeling it. I'm like, it's like almost 90 degrees. I'm wearing short sleeves and I'm not that person. I'm a lizard. I like to go outside and like bake in the sun and it's too hot it's too hot
0: (laughs) it uh it is i this morning i left with russell for a walk and i just like put on what i walk him in but Uh it was way too hot for that so about 12 (laughs) minutes into the thing i'm just soaking and it's only getting warmer as the sun's coming up and i was like all right it reminds me that since we moved to la i've really stopped checking the daily weather forecast like whether we have an outdoor production shoot or if i'm going on a hike or i'm walking my dog i just assume it's going to be like 74 and relatively lovely not always the case
1: Yeah, I woke up this morning and immediately put on my fleece, and then I was sitting at the coffee maker making a cup of coffee, and I told Rob, I was like, this might be overkill. It's like 100% (laughs) overkill, this fleece. (laughs) How are you doing? I want to, like, throw it back to you. How are you doing? Like, I know your body Hmm? was, like, all wonky last week. We kind of talked about it. Yeah. that shoot. How are you doing? How's your ankle? How are things?
0: Thanks, dog. I'm good. I'm better. Um, Not 100%. Like, I'm 92%. um, But, yeah, I got to say, it continued for... Uh, I think what we recorded Wednesday, just after the shoot or something like that, Thursday, Friday, Saturday were really friggin' difficult. Mm. Um, I actually posted about that in one of the hemo groups, just asking people for other tips on pain management because I was kind of going through my toolbox and it was like, huh, this is not, nothing's changing. It was very strange. It was, uh, I don't want, it's not that interesting a topic to deep dive, but I just had not yet experienced like prolonged chronic pain that was so unchanging, you know, it wasn't getting better. It wasn't getting worse but it was debilitating and I was like limiting how many times I went up and down the stairs and like Natalie's got the baby on one arm, she's walking the dog, she's making food and I'm just like lying on the couch going like, this is not how I wanna do life. So I'm I'm way better now. There was a huge shift Saturday into Sunday and I was reminded how many times in my hemo life there have been just like these real sharp turns of a corner and I think Mm -hmm. all patients and caregivers out there like know those Mm -hmm. moments between totally laid up and debilitated and then within no time at all, seemingly fine yeah you know and kids at school being like what's wrong how How?" and you're like it's a whole thing i had that experience saturday into sunday so now we're recording this wednesday i'm happy to say i'm like 92 percent better but man what what a road and it was very um crazy talking about it in the context of a conversation around diet and the importance of that in our holistic health Mm -hmm. and now here we are we got exercise on the table and you know thinking about my body this past week in a much different way than i had been previously and um, you know, exercise, it's, it's, I guess one of the big things I was thinking about coming into today is how it's such uh, an ever-changing thing for all of us. You know, what what our bodies need at any given time, yeah. it changes. So it's not like a static thing. Oh, I'm a swimmer. Like, okay, maybe you're a swimmer, but I mean, it doesn't mean you're going to exclusively swim as your only exercise under any conditions no matter what. But I am the type of person who kind of gets locked into stuff. So it, it's important for me to remember like, hey, exercise is something that like needs to be reassessed. You need to like reconsider your relationship to it's not just plow ahead, plow ahead, plow ahead. Oh, now I have a thing. I have to stop. Let me get back to plowing ahead. Like I'm, I'm having to graduate myself back to an activity level that resembles, you know, quote yeah. unquote normal. So that's so that's that's how I'm doing today, Amy.
1: I was kind of like to go back way back to what you uh, said, like when you first started talking. I was really kind of uh, intrigued by like I had to go through my toolbox of things, mm. and I kind of wonder like exercise for me. I mean, we can kind of get into it, but exercise feels like a toolbox. Like I've been building my toolbox. I didn't I didn't really have that when I was a um, like a teenager. I wasn't an athlete. I was a dancer. So you go to class, right. and. So, you know, I, and I had other friends who were legitimate athletes who knew how to train. So they had like, they, you know, cross training within their, you know, basketball season or football season or whatever, right. All the things. So when they were adults in, in life, they knew how to run and how to lift weights and things. And I didn't, I never did that. So anyway, I just think that's interesting. And it's, it's great that we can kind of like transition into this conversation with exercise. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So let's do just that. And to do that with us, we would like to bring on our uh, friend and Cheat Codes contributor, uh, Delisa O'Brien, who will be back with Amy and I right after this quick break. Okay. We're back and we are now joined by, she is a certified nutrition consultant. She's a person living with sickle cell, a Cheat Codes contributor, and TBH, a longtime friend, Delisa O'Brien. Welcome back to the Bloodstream podcast. How are you?
3: Hello, Patrick. Hi, Amy. I'm good. Yeah, it's kind of a end of the day here in New Jersey, but having a good one so far.
0: And we appreciate you uh, spending some of those later in the day hours with us to record a podcast and uh, to do two segments as well. I'm doing double duty today. Before we get into this segment on exercise, uh, today's Bloodstream episode is made possible by our partner, Takeda. Moving more is a good move. An active lifestyle has many benefits for individuals with a bleeding disorder, including helping to prevent muscle and joint bleeds. Your healthcare provider or physical therapist can help develop an exercise regimen that's best for you. Check out more tips on how to get moving with Takeda at bleedingdisorders.com. Takeda is a proud supporter of the bleeding disorders community for the past 70 plus years. Wherever your bleeding disorder takes you, Takeda is there to support you every mile of the journey. Once again, that is bleedingdisorders.com. So Delisa, um, we chatted a bit about this ahead of time, this exercise and its role when managing like you and I both are rare chronic conditions. So I guess as a place that I want to start and thinking about exercise and fitness, there's a lot of ways to kind of like get into it and think about it. For in your opinion, what do you think? Where should we be placing our focus? What's most important to be thinking about when thinking about exercise and fitness?
3: I think kind of parlaying off of your conversation last week with Alexa um, we do need to focus more on how people feel versus mm-hmm. how you look mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it's more of intuitive like you know how are my how are my joints you know um how how is my my like energy level those sort of things are more important parameters versus thinking about oh I've Gained weight and I don't fit into X Y Z and that sort of like imagery aspect of uh, exercise and fitness. I love
1: that. I love that word. I what was word? just. About to, I just want to. I love intuitive,
3: <laughs> intuitive
1: yes. dieting. into intuit, like being intuitive with your diet, being intuitive with exercise. Intuitive. I I really like that. Anyway. Back to regular yeah. schedule programming. I just wanted no, to say that. It, My hematologist, <laughs> like along
0: those lines, I, always, I would always hammer on listen to your body. And I, as a mm. kid, I didn't fully like, I didn't really understand what that meant. And and frankly, even as an adult, I've, I've, I've gotten better at it um, with age, but I feel like my appreciation for that is really deep in the last number of years. And it's it's connected to that idea of intuition and just what is my body telling me I need, not what is some magazine or piece of clothing in my closet telling me what I need. Um, You know, Delisa, kind of a long uh, side-by-side with that, something I was thinking about, this idea of body positivity. And, Mm -hmm. you know, my personal take on body positivity is that it's important. It's important for people to have self-confidence and to care about themselves and care about their body and their their vessel here in mortal earth. Um, But at the same time, if someone is uh, five foot eight and 475 pounds, I think that person also has a health concern that they need to address in addition to being positive about their mortal being here on earth. So when thinking about the body positivity, we'll call it movement, what about that's important? What about that is kind of a watch out? And from a health perspective, again, what should we be focusing on?
3: So I think in general society, we like to diagnose other people and that Kind of needs to stop. <laughs> um, so it's just like, yes. That was so obesity... gentle. Like,
1: that kind of needs to stop. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know, it's like, yes, we know obesity is a problem. We know that with carrying more weight, you are more um, perceptive to health issues. But you don't know what's going on with everyone's bodies, you know, like a bigger person can be perfectly healthy and a smaller body can, you know, get sick and like end up in the hospital. So as, you know, being kind to each other in society, let's not like diagnose someone. But yes, in general, the more weight that you carry, it is kind of a correlation with like other health issues. What you should be focusing on, once again, is kind of like, what's going on here? You know, like, you know, making sure you're regular with your doctor. What's the cholesterol levels? Are you, you know, are you having Mm -hmm. insulin issues? Those sort of things. And it's kind of accepting yourself first. So it's not like a matter of like, I hate myself (laughs) because I'm obese. It's like, no, I love myself and I'm going to take steps to get my health in better shape so that I can live longer and, you know, if you want to have a family or if you want to have a dog, you know, keep up with life yeah. versus just, like, constantly thinking about the, like, how you look and how society will perceive you and that sort of, like, negative negativity.
0: Yeah, I hear the goal setting in that, too, like, really setting a target for why am I doing what i'm doing you know to your point am i trying to be more fit so i can walk my dog or i want to be around for my for my daughter's the high school graduation and, yeah. and and wedding and and all that stuff so making those goals the thing to incentivize behavior change as opposed to some like someone else diagnosing you on the street or on television yeah. or or these other things that can often influence the way we think about our bodies and our and our fitness
3: exactly like you know that phobia is a whole other conversation but for now let's just all try to be a little healthier you know
0: so we have we mentioned earlier Takeda is uh, our partner and made this episode possible bleedingdisorders.com disorders.com. And there are tips on how you can, uh, work to build a fitness regimen. That is right for you. But Lisa, I know that you have some thoughts on this. So can you give us a few steps that people can take, and I'm going to throw myself into this, that I can take as an individual, <laughs> I'm gonna speak for myself. Now, what are three things that I can do Delisa, that will help me improve my relationship with exercise and fitness?
3: So, yeah, we kind of touched before on the idea of just listening to your body, like, being more intuitive. Um, Now that, like I said, I mentioned I'm on the East Coast, so now spring is upon us. It's finally getting a little warmer. I'm trying to go for a walk, like, every day, but, like, I remember the first walk of the season – was not pretty you know so I was like I got back and I was like oh my knee all right I guess Mm. (laughs) let me just like sit down for like the next day but I was still proud of myself because I'm like I got up and I walked you know there's science behind simply taking 30 minutes a day to go for a walk and that kind of helps start kickstart the you know Metabolism and things in your body. Mm-hmm. Um, so just listen to yourself. Don't necessarily overexert and try to push yourself We're not bodybuilders. We're literally just trying to be healthier <laughs> You know, so <laughs> it's it's like let's avoid the no pain no gain attitude um That said I, like that. I think it's important to find activities that you enjoy so like mm-hmm. it shouldn't be this miserable act I think exercise in general, you're like, oh, God. And so if we find things that we actually enjoy, physical movement is physical movement. So, you know, if you are someone who, like I said, starts off with a walk, you know, you can go hiking. Hiking is just like a Fancy word for walking in nature. Um, You can challenge yourself for like, I'm going to start on the easy trail. Such a secret. I'm glad you
1: said that.
0: Because I feel like for a long time when I heard hiking as a guy who grew up in Queens and Western Long Island, like hiking wasn't a thing. I was like, oh man, there's like fancy boots and you got to wear like a kind of backpack. And then as I got actually out here to Los Angeles, I realized people just use that word. It means walking. It means walking.
3: It's literally walking and you're outside and you're like, oh, man, look at the pretty trees. But you're walking. Um, You know, there are apps that can help you find, like, different levels of trail, you know, like level. So it's like if you don't want to, like, hike up a mountain, then don't do that right away. But there are lots and lots of, like, easy to moderate trails that you can start on. And it makes it scenic and pretty and, you know, you can do it outside. Um, if you, you know, want to try yoga or Pilates, those are both low impact things for people with joint issues. Um, Mm. another low impact thing could be water aerobics, but I do caution finding a warm pool, (laughs) Mm. you know, cold can trigger sickle cell issues. Um, and I'm not sure how you handle cold, but I always put a little caveat around that one, but water aerobics and swimming. Those are great for you if you can, you know, safely do it. Um, right. And then in general, like, I think fitness has become so vast. Like, you can mm-hmm. find dance classes. You can play fitness games. Um, recently, <laughs> I got the the Ring Fit Adventure for, like, the Nintendo Switch. So it's basically, like, an adventure game that you play in your living room You have to, like, run in place, and then there's things that you do with, like, your arms, and, like, it makes you do squats, but, like, you're defeating the boss by doing all these movements, and it's just, it's great, because you do it alone in your living room, and no one gets to see you look silly. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, if you're, yeah, whatever you're into, you just kind of have to explore those avenues a little bit. Lots of options out there now as the point at the end of the day is to just be a little more physical and not sit around on the couch eating chips and dip.
0: Okay. So that's great. So I've heard two things so far. We've got um, essentially listen to your body, let your body call the shots, uh, find the activity that's right for you in one way, shape or form. You just listed a whole bunch of different things that people can think about. What would you say is like a, a third important step for people to take? I'm sorry for myself to take. I forgot this was about me.
3: Oh, for you and honestly, for everyone, just take those moments to be proud of yourself. If you did the simplest of things today, just be, like, proud of yourself that you did something. And also honor, like, the fact that your body is moving. Like, you know, we don't give ourselves enough credit. We don't thank our bodies enough for, like, getting us up and out every day. So I think instead of just, like... Being like, oh, you know, I didn't do anything today. Well, what did you do yesterday? What did you, what are you going to do tomorrow? Um, There are ways of like, you know, checking off on maybe a calendar or there are a bajillion fitness apps. (laughs)
0: Like (laughs) literally
3: you can find one that will remind you to stand up. I had one when I worked at a desk job, <laughs> it would say, Hey, it's been an hour, go stand up. <laughs> and like, I would just take a lap around the office just to move my body a little bit before I go sa- sit back down and continue working. So just honor those moments yes. of like, wherever you do take a little bit of physical movement, a stretch, and so on, and so forth. Um, you know, again, honor your body, you know, we've dealt with so much. Here we are, able to like get up and do stuff, and we should be proud of that. You should celebrate it, not necessarily with ice cream and pizza, but just saying, "Hey, I'm awesome." Wait, what?
0: I did. Wait, something. it sounds like you listened to the last. Oh, you did listen. You already mentioned that. Uh, so, know, ice cream, and pizza, not.
3: Maybe um, a little.
0: <laughs> might need Not, some...
3: you know, you said it's about you, so I have to make it personal. <laughs> <laughs>
0: ah, Touche. All right, well. I guess I need more time with a certified nutrition consultant to get me on the right uh, the right course. Um, those are really, you know, those are very practical and um, applicable to anyone. You know, there's there's a lot of room in there. Ta- honoring yourself, I mean, there's a million ways you can do that. Literally, just having the thought that I'm appreciative of my body is honoring yourself. The activities, what it means to listen to your body to let it call the shots. These are things that, like you said, anyone can do at a certain level. So. Thank you for taking the time to like think this through and put this down for us. Um, Amy, is there anything on this that you wanna kind of comment on before we chat about curative therapies?
1: No, I thought it was great. I thought it was, uh, it's good, it's important. Listen to your body, be kind, give yourself grace, you know.
0: Yeah. So again, thank you to Kata for sponsoring this uh, segment and episode, bleedingdisorders.com to learn more. And we will be right back for more with Talisa.
3: I finally got up and just started moving as much as I could. And
0: I tell people that are dealing with chronic pain, the worst thing you can do is lay in bed and not move. So I just force myself to move even when I don't feel like it.
3: Well, I get up early and I try to walk with my husband and my puppies. After I've had my coffee, I will go and do that. The dogs have helped get me up even when I don't feel like it. They get bored laying around and they'll tell me they want to go outside. They've been a good encouragement.
0: So, Amy and I have our chat with Lawrence coming up here in just a little bit, but one other thing that we wanted to talk to Delisa about. Gene therapy, don't know if you've heard about it. We've only been talking about it ad nauseum for forever. Um, and curative therapies in rare disease. So this is an area where the world of sickle cell and the world of hemophilia um, have yet another thing in common, right? Both of these disease states are on the brink of gene therapies being made available a new and a different treatment option that we sometimes hear of um described as curative and this was something Delisa and i were chatting a bit about following her review of the most recent cheat codes episodes where doctors mike and amara along with lakila bailey from the uh sickle cell consortium and a number of thought leaders doctors kind of break down what came up at the american society of hematology Ash's conference in december that's most important for the sickle cell community. And after listening to it and chatting with Delisa, she had some points that I have not heard other people make about gene therapy and curative therapies, and I think it's very important. So Delisa, I'm gonna pause there and give you the floor. Tell us what you think about gene therapy and curative therapies.
3: Well, you know, I am 32 years old. So, you know, my whole life, sickle cell, and I've dealt with the ups and downs in and out of the hospital my little mini stroke, blood transfusions, the whole deal. And I, you know, I honor all the people out there, the warriors who are doing their best to like get through the day to day dealing with this disease. However, I do find myself kind of thinking nowadays, I'm okay. You know, yes, I have my issues, but for the most part, I'm living a pretty well balanced life, you know. I've got friends, I've got family. I'm able to to travel and do certain things, and I don't take that for granted. So I think when we push the idea of you know curative diseases more than acceptance and saying like it is possible to just live okay with this disease, and it doesn't always have to be this idea of I need to fix it. Um, what mainly sparked my connection to this conversation that we're having, I was watching a movie um, called Sound of Metal, and it's on Amazon Prime if anyone's interested. And in the movie, the main character suddenly loses his hearing. And um, we also find out that he is a recovering addict. So the sponsor finds him a community of deaf um, individuals who are also in recovery. And the leader kind of tells him right off the bat, you know, we're here to kind of help heal, like, your heart and your mind. It's not necessarily about pushing, fixing the deafness, because there is an option to get the implant. I can never say the word, so everyone forgive me, but it's, like, Co- cochlear, Co- coch, Co- Yeah, something, <laughs>
0: something like that.
3: Like, it's, like, ah, my tongue gets twisted, but, yeah, they can get the implant, <laughs> and it does not fix the hearing, but it, it helps with, like, taking in sound and so you know the guy basically like wasn't really hearing all of that he's like nope I'm gonna try to save up the money and get this fixed and I won't spoil the ending but let's just say it wasn't what he expected and so for me that like really hit home I was like you know yeah it is about healing like your heart and your mind because we do kind of live with a little bit of resentment a little bit of anger and pain at like You know everything that comes with having a a bleeding disorder or blood disorder, and so I guess I just find it a little dismissive of like you can still have a life. It's it's about making those adjustments. You know we talked about finding the physical activity that works for you. Our entire lives is about finding the things that work for us, and it's it's a little bit more work than our able-bodied brothers and sisters, but it's still worth living, you know, like, once we get over the hurdles, mental, physical, whatever. So I just I just think curative therapies are amazing, and I know there are people who are in desperate need of that, you know, therapy that could change their life, but my life's good, like, and I don't necessarily want people to dismiss the fact that their life can still be good with sickle cell, with hemophilia, you know with Von Willebrand's thalassemia, and so yeah, I, yeah, it's like, a, it's like a mixed bag. I'm like, yeah, you know, it's awesome true. that they're doing this, but some of us are good.
0: <laughs> right, right, which to me is, yeah, awesome that's being done scientifically, medically, we wanna be making these advancements, we wanna be able to do more and more and more for all disease and, diseases and illnesses, but from a distribution and communications point of view, I think that's where the kind of the rubber meets the road because i i you know i i'm not in a race to get rid of hemophilia like you i'm doing pretty well it was doctor's day this week i posted about like i'm grateful for all the hematologists who have helped me live a great life because born a generation ago chances are i'd be dead by now born in most of the world when i was born chances are i'd be dead right now so I'm really happy with, like, how things have gone instead. And there are a lot of unanswered questions around some of the therapies that are being worked on and and people are excited about and are, are hyped about. So I agree with you that if we simply frame them as, like, the answer in some way, it is a discredit to everyone who is managing these conditions and has for, for all of time. It 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 is not to be it's not supposed to be an alternative it's an option i mean maybe i'm getting semantic but it's not like we all now do this no that's just another treatment option and we should be speaking about it in those terms that's you know amy we've talked a lot about this on the pod i'm curious what's your take on all this
1: that that's exactly my thought i you know delisa i really like respect where you are and like i i i respect that i think i i think to me, what um resonates is it it just seems like you I mean this sounds a little deep, but it seems like you are well with your soul you know what I mean that you that this is a part of you and you don't necessarily want to come in and fix something so you feel fine knowing that there's like so much you know substance beneath that i I, I like that and I also think that um you know that might not be um Some folks might not be capable of that and to have, you know, the option or to have like choice, like patient choice, you know, that that's that's meaningful to me, you know, and and I think it is a communication thing of like, you know, we're not going to push this that this is the be all end all. But like how wonderful to um, have treatment options um, so people can live optimally, which is such a as I said it, I was like, who says the word optimal? Oh,
0: I mean, I do kind of a lot.
1: I feel, I feel like it was like in an email chain, optimal, and then I set it, now uh. it's
0: plugged in. Yeah, it got stuck in your head. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, brutal.
0: Delisa, have you heard other patients kind of share this perspective, or have you heard this kind of thinking bubble up anywhere else?
3: I well, yes, actually, because I think. You know, I'm kind of plugged into different areas. Um one of my friends works primarily with like children on the spectrum and I think that area specifically kind of pushes that, you know, there's nothing wrong with your child if right. they are autistic. Right. right. <laughs> you know, like what is so wrong with being autistic? You just have a bigger learning curve. And you know, it's I think that's where it's like for me I'm like, "Yes. What is so wrong with having sickle cell?" I just have a few bigger hills to overcome, and right. that's kind of where I'm trying to shift my thinking. Because definitely, for a very long time, it was the "woe is me," and I want to do what you know Serena Williams is doing. Like, no, like mm-hmm. <laughs> this is where yeah, I'm I at, it. and I'm gonna like excel in my lane. And I think that you know we we should just like think of that more for people. Um, part two of the you know, what happened, what just happened in conversation where they were talking more about like, hey, there's a drug that if taken with hydroxyria could have like, like that excited me a little more than like, mm. you know, the, the whole conversation behind like the gene therapy. Because as you know, um, even the episode with Dr. Krish, there's a lot to it. And that, you know, is just like, more than curing it. <laughs> and yeah. so I think, you know, once people kind of start to really delve into the like, well, it's gonna involve chemo and it could affect your reproduction, like that stuff was just like, hey, let's say curative therapy is with side effects.
0: <laughs> right. Um, right. So it's
3: not. It's not A to B. It's A to Z. So.
0: We're yeah. also talking, you know, usually here about gene addition as opposed to gene editing, the difference being that we are not fundamentally changing the dysfunctional gene, we are adding a functional gene on top. But biologically, like my daughter's a carrier of hemophilia. If I had gotten the gene, if I was on a clinical trial for gene therapy that's being worked on right now, she'd still be a carrier of hemophilia. So again, like, what do we mean when we say the word cure, if that can be true too? So I, I'm, I appreciate that you are expressing how you feel about this because I think it's very it's a, it's an important viewpoint and I would love just like let's keep in conversation you and I about as this landscape of treatment ch- continues to evolve and the communication around it continues to do what it does. I'd love for us to just stay in conversation and maybe bring you back through periodically. Just, hey, what are you hearing now? What are you thinking about? What's going on in sickle cell? And to that point, before we let you go, Delisa, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here. I didn't tell you we were going to do this oh, part, God. but would you mind, as a, a farewell for now, sharing with the audience what it is that you are going to be doing on cheat codes and with cheat codes, and where can people keep up with you as you do it?
3: Hi, everyone. Um, okay, so I am. <laughs> taking on a patient ambassador role with cheek codes. So um, if you've listened to the podcast, and you should, um, they can be very doctor, doctor, you know, lobbing the ball to each other. And so I'm simply bringing that aspect of a patient living with the disease that can maybe just check them a little bit or, add a little bit of layman's terms here and there where they kind of forget to slow it down for us regular folks. (laughs) So, yeah, that is going to be my new role. And um, right now I'm just going to use my uh, nutrition consultant accounts so you can find me at Lanula Nutrition Consulting. Um, And that's L-U-N-U-L-A. Uh, It means tiny moon. Um, But (laughs) yeah, check me out on Twitter, Instagram. Um, I'm working on my Facebook page. I have a website, all those things, if you want to get in contact with me.
0: There'll be links in the program notes as well. Uh, and yeah, do check out Cheat Codes the Sickle Cell Podcast. Again, the most recent episodes, if you're listening in real-ish time, are uh, get some of the KOLs and, and thought leaders in Sickle Cell talking about the presentations of one of the biggest conferences of the year. That was ASH back in December. So if this is an area of interest to you, that is, uh, that's something that you'd probably like to listen to. Delisa, to thank you for coming on and sharing with us your personal thoughts on this, as well as some of your expertise when it comes to the world of wellness and nutrition and fitness and exercise and I look forward to the next time we uh, have you back on. All right, Amy and I are now joined by friend and fellow advocate Lawrence Woolard from the UK. He's recently published a couple of pieces, one in Rare Revolution magazine, the other in LA Kelly Communications recent pen in their bleeding disorders resources review issue. Both articles were great. So we asked Lawrence to come on to talk about them both. They're timely. uh, And he is looking at things that frankly, I don't see a lot of other people looking at in quite this amount of depth. So without further ado, Lawrence, welcome back to the Bloodstream podcast.
2: Thanks so much, Patrick. So good to see you and uh, me, Amy, virtually for the first time as well. So thanks so much for having me on.
1: I know I was about to say, like all of the bullet points of all your amazing stats. Also, never met Amy. <laughs> We've never met, and now we have.
0: <laughs> that was at the top, <laughs> Amy. That was at the top.
2: Come on, that was at the top. Never met Amy, but the That's Amy That's what board. I thought as well. As yeah. well. The last time I was on the pod, me and uh, Patrick, we were in your hotel room in Glasgow, right?
0: I remember it very well. That was a bizarre time for me, to be perfectly honest. (laughs) I never got used to being there either. It was just like bright until 1130 at night. It was so weird. But I I, I do want to get into the stuff that you've written. But just before, let's do a quick check in because it has been a few years since listeners heard from you. Uh, How are you? How are your last few months been in this crazy time we're living through and probably talked too much about to begin with? But just in basic, like, how are you, man?
2: Yeah, I'm, look, I'm really good and um, I really appreciate you asking. I think, you know, for everybody it's been a really sort of chaotic and sometimes quite vulnerable time. I feel incredibly privileged to have an amazing family and a support system around me. I think from a like a, a haemophilia treatment perspective, it's been also quite interesting where, you know, and many people in the community and many listeners in terms of delays and in interventions from a health standpoint, I've been mm-hmm. dealing with my left ankle, which was really troubling. And I was really hoping to have a radio things were sort of pushed back. So, you know, those types oh, of wow. experience, which again, I know that many people in the community have pro- probably been experiencing, but again, just feel very fortunate during this time that my friends and family are all well. So that's the main thing. So, and I, I just wanted to say as well, Patrick, obviously massive congratulations to you and Natalie on the birth of Vivian. It's really awesome.
0: Thank you, man. I appreciate that. I had a synovectomy on my left ankle actually 22 years ago, so it's been a minute, but it was (laughs) immediately beneficial and it's it remains one of the best medical interventions that i've had as it relates to hemophilia so yeah, definitely. Uh, i'm rooting for you let us know when that i'll be curious and my left ankle is my thing too so on a personal note keep me posted yeah, i'm curious to hear how that uh, develops Thanks. for you but let's jump in so tell me about this this article in rare revolution magazine uh, maybe how did it come to be and then if you want to take us through it and then amy and i will i'm sure have a bunch of questions because we already got a list of them right here <laughs> yeah
2: Rare Evolution magazine, it's like one of the first of its kind sort of digital platforms, giving a voice to those affected Mm. by rare conditions. And it was set up by two sisters, Rebecca Stewart and Nicola Miller, who I think you guys know quite well from having them on the pod last year, right?
0: Last year for Rare Disease Day. Yeah, good memory.
2: Amazing. So they're really cool. They normally put themes to each of their editions and and the one that was published in January was all on Rare Transition. Rebecca and Nicola kindly invited myself and my friend, peer and colleague, Simon Stones, to just give some insight um, into transition for young people, and particularly during the sort of COVID era. Patrick, I'm sure like me, thinking about that time in your life, some really critical periods when lifelong health-related habits are being established. and. I think in this globalized increasingly in- interconnected world adolescence and adolescent health can be significantly impacted you know by social political economic environmental and structural factors so it's quite interesting because some of the discourses around transition seem to imply this sort of linear model of development so this like smooth transition into you mm-hmm. know into independence you know these are complex processes you know it's a complex time and they're sort of rather messy for young mm-hmm. people living with long term health conditions delays in psychosocial development are more noticeable compared to healthy peers as well as poorer clinical control mm-hmm. of their condition and we see that in hemophilia there's lots of evidence around adherence rates it's a factor and the drops in adherence rates in adolescence as young people merge into adulthood. In many countries, transitional healthcare is considered quite suboptimal, despite guidance being around for at least 15, 20 years. And in more recent times, there's been a push for transitional healthcare to be set in a developmental context known as developmentally appropriate healthcare. And that's really to reflect adolescent and young adult brain development and its associations with behavior
0: you may be getting to this, Lauren, so forgive me if I'm jumping the gun here, but can you expand on what, what is developmentally appropriate healthcare? What exactly are we talking about there?
2: Yeah, and that's very much that sort of life course approach. So I think it's about responding to young people, not necessarily based on age, but where they are in terms of their cognitive development and their capacity Got it. to make sense of where they are in the world. But then obviously COVID, Right. And I think like you guys, and I, I probably didn't say it from the top, actually, Patrick, and I think for the whole bloodstream team, mm. you know, you've know, you been raising awareness of you know key social, human rights and cultural issues. And I have huge respect for the team, particularly in relation to ethnic and racial discrimination, female oppression, LGBTQ plus rights, mental health and depression. So I wanted to get that in because I think it's been really, really important. And I think what we've seen from the pandemic. Thanks, is how it's exacerbated. So to put the the impact of the pandemic Mm -hmm. into some context, in the UK, rates in destitution have increased as much as 16 to 20 times for 18 to 24 year olds in both COVID and non-COVID scenarios. And that's possibly from high youth unemployment and financial distress.
0: I thought you were going to say sixteen to 20 percent, but you're saying 16 to 20x times.
2: Yeah. So I think our Simon and I's first real call to action was young people must not become a lost generation or treated as collateral mm-hmm. damage mm-hmm. as a result of weighted decision making. We're emphasizing about working with young people in participatory ways to promote inclusivity
0: and empower young people to discover and express personal agencies. So much in that is worthy of responding to. But I think the thing that I come away with is to your point about the primary endpoint of making sure that young people don't become the lost generation, the lost COVID generation. A couple things that jumped out to me, though. You mentioned this earlier, that there's been guidances on transitions within the UK for over 15 years, but that we still see suboptimal outcomes. And I also read in the piece that, there is a UN Convention on the Rights of the Child that state the child has a fund. There's a fundamental right for young people to participate in the designing of programs and policies which ultimately affect them. So it seems as though that's the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. We're talking about a UK guidance for 15 plus years. We've had stuff in place for transition and for making sure the youth voice is captured and things meant to help the youth. So I guess my question is why has it taken this pandemic to exacerbate the problems someone should have done something prior to the pandemic given what you found here in in your research it's a really really great question and point if i look at the uk model of practice
2: there's organizations within the bleeding disorders community HemeNet, an mdt research organization led by dr kate Kerr. They did a huge programme on transition, which I was really fortunate to be involved with in terms of nurse care and you know, nurse delivery and care around the transition and trying to really partner adult and paediatric clinics, looking at transition, coming up with sort of new means and ways of supporting young people. So you're right to say, obviously at a national level, there's lots of work going on and NHS forward review and things like that. But even in the bleeding disorder space, Transition has been focused on also in the literature, but maybe we haven't explored the best ways in terms of information exchange and delivery and who should be doing that. And I think very much around sort of peer-led models of practice, peer-led education, peer mechanisms within the clinic. And at the moment, there isn't such that. You know, if I look back to 16, when we transitioned here in the UK to adult clinic, I mean, overnight, Mm -hmm. Overnight, I went from the paed clinic to right, right. suddenly outpatients in London, huge outpatients department, hundreds right. of people, not just isolated to my condition. And you're being bounced around different rooms to get weighed. Then you're seeing the physio, you've got to wait a little bit. You might not even see your consultant. It might be a locum doctor. So to summarise that and answer your, your question, again, it's very multifaceted, but I think we should be exploring more meaningful ways of how we support young people particularly through peer mechanisms
1: i agree and i'm really struck i I think labeling this generation the COVID generation is so astute because i feel like these folks these teenagers going into young adulthood these young adults are going to have now this like two-year gap in terms of any structure and any programming, just like you said, peer-to-peer interaction. Here in the States, so much of our peer-to-peer in the hemophilia bleeding disorder space is summer camp. These like events that are Mm -hmm. like annual get-togethers, annual spaces where leaders can really shape their youth and all of that's done virtually. And I can imagine as a teenager, just feeling you're isolated already because you have hemophilia and maybe no one understands, but then you're just at home and how that can trickle down into mental health. I just think it's going to be very interesting how we as a society, not just with rare disease, but with that young adult age group, You know what it's gonna be like to miss those two years.
2: It's a great point. I think at the last, I think it was at Ehad, meeting Mm -hmm. i actually asked during a covid session about whether they're going to do any sort of longitudinal assessments on the impact of clinics during the pandemic but actually more importantly whether there's going to be any studies looking at the impact on obviously not only the community but maybe specific demographics and cohorts. Maybe that's something for, for me to look into to see if anybody's exploring that impact on young people. Um, you know, a large part of that, and again, it, it might come on to the, the when we when we discuss social media use. I feel a
0: transition coming up for I do too. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was
1: like, I feel it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I think a large part of it is engagement. A large part of it is engagement.
2: Yeah, yeah. We talk about these yeah, processes yeah. of like activation in terms of your care, and, you Making know, in make- sense of your choices, but we'll talk, also talk about engagement, engagement in the community, engagement in the clinic. I, I feel like, and particularly with the sort of the, the treatment paradigm, and obviously specifically speaking about hemophilia, it's been very much geared towards one of convenience, and I think we've very much had this sort of within clinic this idea of trying to support people to go and live their life. Don't let hemophilia lead you; you lead it, and wholeheartedly behind that principle. But I think now at this point where obviously the treatment landscapes change, I think suddenly everyone's a bit like, hold on, now we need to educate everybody. And we're suddenly having Mm -hmm. to find Mm -hmm. all these people that have basically spent, now they're in their adolescence, spent 15 years just doing what they've always thought they've done and and not necessarily having the peer
0: validation because of the lack of opportunity to actually meet others like them. To your point about support for peer-to-peer opportunities... That, that is certainly lacking. I know that's something that you are adamant about the importance of and have been for a long time. I share that with you, and that's definitely uh, uh, getting into our next topic here in the next article on social media and P2P. The one thing I did just want to kind of bullet, you're talking about engagement. I found myself on another podcast yesterday talking about this when asked why we do what we do. We believe in empowerment, right? We think that's important so that people can take agency in their lives and live as fully embodied people. Well, empowerment's the result of education, right? Once you learn stuff, then you actually can take some agency into how you want to apply that information to your life. Education comes when there's engagement. It doesn't happen in a silo. You don't wake up and just get educated. There has to be something engaging you in order to educate you so that you can be empowered. And here's where I come in. How do you engage people? You entertain them. And that's the thing that for a decade I've been talking about, and for the first few years was a lot harder for some funders and supporters to get their head around because entertainment is seen as a dirty word, whereas I see it as the gateway to everything else. So sure, you can write education down 12 times in that one pager, and you can talk about empowerment till you're blue in the face. But to your point, if people aren't engaged, who cares? And if you think you've got a better tool than entertainment to engage them, Use it. All right, let's transition to this article on social media because it ties into all this too. Give us the overview. What what was this article kind of focusing on? What was your primary goal with this one? Yeah, no, honestly, thanks again. And um, first of all, I have huge respect for Laurie Kelly. Laurie
2: is you know, LA comms, LA Kelly comms, and, and you know um, is the senior editor of, of Penn. So she's an absolute titan of the community. So I was delighted when me and Laurie caught up and she said, would you like to do something for the upcoming Penn? I, I also understand they've got. It's been going for thirty-two years, isn't that wild? Isn't that? That is not thats just mad. And also, actually, one one last thing as well. I forgot to say, Laurie's article review process was the most comprehensive <laughs> and tough review process I've ever been through, ever.
1: I believe it. Like more
2: than the Haemophilia Mm. Journal. And I believe even without like speaking on behalf of Glenn Pierce, I even understand that Glenn said exactly the same thing. And this is like Glenn
0: Pierce. But I guess it reflects the the quality of of what they publish. So, you know, it's only a That'll get you 32 years. You don't get to 32 years without investment like that.
2: Exactly. But as you said, like it links really well with the COVID. So, you know, with lockdown and strict physical distancing, it's meant that more people... Uh, are using digital social networks to interact and and, and share information and on a historic and extraordinary scale. So it's demonstrated the potential of conveying important health messages as well as challenging some key issues like mental health stigma. But also like obviously for many people in the uh, bleeding disorders community under lockdown, decreased physical activity may have negatively impacted their joints and muscles. So we've also witnessed patient advocacy groups um, adopting and improving virtual operations and e-learning approaches, using social media to promote yeah. their members' well-being. But I think even pre-COVID, social media has been promoted as an inexpensive means for patient education. And speaks right. to what you said, Patrick, about enabling and empowering people and consumers in their health and healthcare. And this is particularly significant for people living with chronic conditions where management and care can be supported and fostered through peer-to-peer interaction and validation. I think we all know Professor Mike Macris from Sheffield UK, <laughs> right? The Mac.
0: We certainly do. The infamous, the one guy who won't come on this podcast.
2: <laughs> he still hasn't come on. He still hasn't he come on. on to
0: Open invitation. No. Open invitation.
2: <laughs> this is a call to, to action for... Hashtag return of the Mac to get on the pod.
0: Maybe we got to start a campaign. Maybe we just did. I don't know. Anyway, keep going. I didn't mean to sidetrack that nonsense.
2: Prof Macris has become an influencer in his own right. And he published a paper on Twitter and haemophilia last year where he said information is no longer a privilege and the time when patients are more up to date and better informed than their doctors is already here. I think that's yeah, I think that's a really powerful quote. An American physician, Dr. Tom Ferguson, first coined the term e-patients to describe individuals who are equipped, enabled, and empowered and engaged in their health and healthcare decisions. And he envisaged healthcare as an equal partnership between e-patients and health professionals and systems that support them. So I think when we looked into the evidence around social media use within the bleeding disorders community there's still quite a lot of limited concrete results indicating whether and how social media use significantly improves patient outcomes so from my own sort of lit review the reporting in haemophilia is quite scarce mm-hmm. but i did uh, come across one paper which was an attempt to increase awareness of von willebrand disorder that was reported by Rain and colleagues in Canada. Uh, the initiative was called "Let's Talk Period." So over three, Shout out Dr. Paula James.
1: Yeah, with Dr. James. Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, so over three months, they targeted women in their reproductive years across, you know, different social platforms and invited them to participate mm-hmm. in an online self-assessment tool to recognise abnormal bleeding symptoms. So they had. 489 responses I think 95% were female and from 64 countries and the most commonly reported bleeding symptoms were heavy menstrual bleeding and postpartum hemorrhage so that was one case at least in bleeding disorders that demonstrated the use of social to drive outcomes I think mm. the challenges though is the risk of reducing health information access for those who are not technologically connected so this digital divide. I'm going to throw some stats at you. About 22% of the UK's population lack basic digital skills and 31% of rural US households are still without access to broadband internet. And these differences only increase when examining the issue by income groups so the pandemic stands to make the impacts of digital exclusion worse for the millions affected and, and the socio-economic disadvantage will be hit the hardest with e-health so health information from electronic sources it requires a skill set a literacy of its own to appraise and apply the knowledge gained in addressing and solving a health problem and Digital literacies and internet connectivity have been called the super social determinants of health because they address all other social determinants of health. So, for example, applications for employment, housing and other assistance programs, each of which influences on individuals' health are increasingly Mm. and sometimes exclusively accessible online. So I think the key to sort of wrap it up, like the key summary is that, one, I think providers who design social media interventions or campaigns must be mindful of the different population segments in the patient community to ensure equity of access to educational opportunities and not just target those who are more socially mobile and tech and e-health literate. And second, I think there's still a strong need to examine not only how to tailor and deliver more effective and responsive patient education through social but also how to assess its impact on patient health uh, patient health outcomes i remember doing a piece on generation z and about waking up young people to new treatment possibilities and even in that i said and i still believe it today that social media should be an enhancement instead of a replacement to experiential and inclusive educational experiences
0: Yes, I you know that too feels hand in hand with the discussion about hybrid models going forward for things like patient conferences and having learned so much about virtual and distance learning that can be done remotely. That seems like it goes hand in hand with this idea of social should not replace another educational mechanism, rather be a complement, be an amplifier, be another tactic, be another rung in the ladder, so to speak. I, I mean, again, Lawrence, you, you, these are so full, so there's a lot to respond to. I, I have one specific thing I do want to ask, but I feel like it might get us a little bit, you know, left of center or right of center here So Amy, is there anything off the bat that you want to ask about before I take us on maybe a little bit of a straight path?
1: No, I think the thing that uh, I I guess another question that might stray us as well is like misinformation on social media and kind of meme culture that's so heavy in the health and wellness space. From my standpoint, hearing the word e-patient, it's like, when are we going to get to that bridge where it's becoming misinformation and especially with new treatments? I mean, that's just that's just like an interesting thing, too. Yeah.
0: So that's a, that's actually where um, I was going to go as well. So I'm going to I'm gonna take that and jump hey! and expand on it. So um, I think those final points around the disparities and how those are only exacerbated at a time like this, how when you break it down further by economic status, it only exacerbates the problem and so forth. All good points all need addressing. But the thing that kind of jumped out to me as I was first reading this and now listening to you uh, break it down is this idea that, uh, so we believe in peer-to-peer support. You're adamant about it. I support that camp was one of the most important things I ever went to. The hallway conversations, so to speak, at patient conferences are as important as anything that happens when I'm sitting in a chair in a room with a doctor talking. As important, if not more important. And, I, and, and all of that's true. And at the same time, online, there are watchouts around, well, somebody posts a picture of you know their child's bruise in a closed Facebook group for hemo people. And then 100 people respond some dogmatically about you know what it is and what should be done. And of course it's not all accurate or appropriate. And just because someone's a patient or a caregiver, it doesn't necessarily make them subject matter expert. They might be expert on their body and their situation. It doesn't make them an expert on the subject. And that's true. And we have to mind that. And yet I was not aware of fear around these kind of peer-to-peer engagements in the camp setting or in the conference setting or in those live settings where we much value and recognize the importance of peer-to-peer connection. And that's not to say misinformation isn't spreading when we're speaking to each other in person. It's just to say that it seems as though we are more sensitive to that misinformation spreading online and sometimes use that as a cudgel to knock online interaction, online education, social media stuff. So I guess if I could land this in a question, how do we balance the importance of peer-to-peer education, both live and online, while also recognizing its limits and making sure that we are protecting against too many voices actually muddying the waters when it comes to education? And they're great
2: points. And I think it's it's a really challenging question. In the article, for instance, we talk about armchair epidemiologists, and we've seen a lot of them over the COVID space. And I think you're you're right, Patrick, sometimes when I observe, and in particular, caregivers, and you can understand why because of that initial period in terms of their child's life and, you know, the concerns, the worries, the trauma, the pressure. So I totally respect that. And sometimes, you know, you see caregivers post images, as you said, of certain bleeds or whatever it might be. And, um, and it can be for a variety of reasons, I think, thinking about the ecosystem, everybody's got to be accountable in terms of the patient advocacy groups, there's got to be a pathway of engagement. So there needs to be somehow, you know, a way and means whatever background you're from, as you said, whatever sort of demographic cohort, whatever it might be, there's got to be a means and way of ensuring that that individual or family can seek support in the right way, and there is a pathway of engagement to other opportunities that are going to support that no- that knowledge acquisition, whereby that then that can trickle mm. down, mm-hmm. or they can then go and inform their peers or whatever it might be. So I think I guess that'd be my first point that there's got to be that pathway of engagement and. and, and From the top, you spoke about this, that it's about buy-in, isn't it? And providing a a consistent value proposition, isn't it? Why do I want to engage in this organization Mm -hmm. or this content? And I think sometimes what we see happening is very ad hoc, very standalone, rather than, you know, again, take young people, for instance, rather than a systematic program of educational deliverables, which is taking young people on a journey that they can access episodically when they need to, when they would like to, and have a space then through a trusted source like a patient advocacy group to engage with their peers in the right setting that could then be facilitated through peer leaders, you know, something to that effect. But also I think I think as well, the clinic, there's got to be a lot of accountability on the clinics. The clinics, I mean, Patrick, you spoke about entertainment being a gateway and, you know, I I totally agree Mm -hmm. with that. I also see the treatment centres as the gateway to access holistic support and services. They're the main they're the main place that anybody living with a bleeding disorder is going to interact with in the first instance. And then the main place that you visit whereby you may be surrounded by others like you. So treatment centres are pivotal to ensure that people are aware of community engagement and activities that are going on, one. But also, two, and I don't know how much this applies to a US setting, so forgive me, but i certainly look, you know, here, for instance, in the UK and sort of the European model, I would love to see more support from the advocacy groups supporting regional centres to host local events and engagement initiatives, and educational opportunities to support that local community cohesion, you know, that grassroots activity, to build the community locally around that sort of hub, we don't see enough of that. And and again, that's probably related to resource restrictions, capacity and time of the nurses and the physicians. But I'd love to see more support because I think that is where that sort of ground up approach. I think that's where we're going to get more. At least, again, from a UK's perspective, I see that as a means of way of being able to access people and reduce barriers to engagement.
0: Yes.
1: You know, I will say that here in the States, there has been a concentrated effort to do that, to build those local regional chapters. And it was to the National Hemophilia Foundation's credit, like a decade ago, started an initiative to pump resources into local chapters, to build them up, to have sustainable staff, to hire staff. So many of those organizations were volunteer led and the outcomes that we've seen over the years. I mean, to see the chapter network now, I I, I was a chapter leader for years and I kind of got in right at the beginning of that and to watch it grow and the sustainability, the sustainability of the board of directors and then the increased relationships with those treatment centers has been really wonderful to see. And I agree with you. I think it is crucial. It is a grassroots effort. And it, it kind of depends on relationships. If, you know, a patient family has those personal good solid relationships with clinicians or the chapter leaders or both or if one is strained find your way through that and I think bringing it back to the social media thing the the not the problem but like almost the challenge I see is when you have strained relationships on either side social media becomes a place where you get your information and to be I don't just aware of where you're getting your information to double check, just like, you know, Patrick said, sometimes in those groups, it's it's just a little dicey. I, I think so much of this is built on relationships and trust. But in terms of that grassroots effort here in the States, I've been really impressed with it over the last couple of years, to NHF's credit.
2: And that's really, and it's really, really pleasing to hear. And I think, I don't know what it says, but I would certainly say, thinking about the UK and European context, we still have no formal educational programs related to anything, related to self-management, related to new treatment <laughs> options, none. Wait, how is that possible? I don't know. Yeah,
1: I feel like you guys...
2: I don't yeah. know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And and I've been going on this for for a few years now when I've challenged certain kols on it for instance the the response we often get is we tried it it didn't work we tried it and not many people turned up and my always my thought process is but how did you try it what was the message recall how did you market and promote the opportunity who was behind it how was it being delivered so we need to address that. And I think some of the patient advocacy groups, total props and respect to them in terms of having to move online. There has been many different sort of webinar opportunities. Even for me, being able to access other countries' webinars that probably I wouldn't have been able to if I had to go there in person. So there's been huge advantages. I guess it's just that how do we ensure that more people who aren't necessarily engaged have access to these opportunities? How are they aware about them? Why would they want to attend them? What does it mean to them? How can then they apply that knowledge within their own setting, their own healthcare journey, right.
1: you know? And how do we measure success with that? We're a very isolated, spread out community. I, I remember when I was in Colorado, we would have these strong Denver education programs and then when we would go over to the western slope there would only be maybe nine people there but that measure of success knowing that there was such a smaller number in that rural area was so valuable even though it was only nine people there so it's like how do we measure success
2: i think it's a really good point amy because what i find really surprising as well is that there's such a lack of measuring outcomes of interventions or programs Mm -hmm. or initiatives and I don't know whether that's because of capacity or whether there needs to be more you know, capacity building to support people in terms of learning how to actually deliver a programme and what measures to use to realise whether it's actually having any benefit to the community. Why have you considered or developed a certain initiative? Where is the demand coming from? How have you assessed that demand? And then, again, how have you incorporated those voices into the planning and delivery of that project and then are we seeing any outcomes whatever that might be whether it is psychosocial whether actually there are any health you know impacts and benefits whether short or long term that that kind of structure i haven't seen at least over here and i think this is where the challenge becomes of Thinking about digital solutions and whether that's too much of an easy route. Because the question still comes to how are people going to be aware about that digital solution? Because if they're not engaged, if they're right. not doing probably what we're doing, which is hashtag hemophilia with all the different spellings and Von Willer brands and but yeah. hashtag bleed disorders <laughs> and looking at the content, looking at the news. Constantly trying to find and source, see what people are t- If you're not doing that, how are you ever gonna know about these opportunities?
0: Right. When really big documentaries get made about hemophilia, but that's a whole, <laughs> whole- <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm only sort of kidding, right? Like again, it comes back to entertainment and media and 100%. You know, you wanna- I was just gonna say, Patrick,
2: and then that's for me like it's been Awesome to see the growth of one, Believe, but two, also just the Bloodstream platform. I love the content you guys are producing. And um I, I don't know if also I may have forgot to mention at the start, but I normally listen to the pod when I'm doing my sort of like stretching routine before my cycle ride. So next time you record, nice. just, just think about me stretching my glutes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, that's tempting, but I'm just going to leave it alone. I'm just going to leave it alone.
1: I was about to say, I was like, Lawrence, now I'm not going to be able to think of anything else. Just me
2: in my, like, tight cycle lycra stretching my glutes. (laughs) Um...
1: Well, now it's going to like make its way into random introductions. We'll be like, we have a feeling Lawrence is stretching his glutes right now. So we'd just like (laughs) to give a shout out.
0: Don't forget the hamstrings. Don't forget the hamstrings. (laughs) Lawrence, (laughs) you are, uh, you're, you're a busy person doing a lot of stuff. Where can people keep up with what you're doing? Get links to the stuff that you're writing about. Where's the best place to keep up with you?
2: No. And I really appreciate that, Patrick. And then obviously I'm on social and Twitter is what I normally use at the Woolard. I also have my own consultancy here in the UK, which I publish a lot through the blog, and that's on the pulse But obviously, in relation to the two pieces, please check out Rare Revolution magazine, rarerevolution.com, um, and then also Laurie's pen, because for me as well, particularly this side of the Atlantic, it's a great resource. And it's great to see what the community are talking about. So all I can say is it's been an absolute privilege to come on and thanks so much for the time and space to you know, share about those two articles, which mean a lot to me, so thank you.
0: Thank you for the great work. Thank you for coming on. There'll be links to those articles as well as to Lawrence's Twitter and to his website for his On The Pulse consultancy in the program notes. Thank you, my friend, always a pleasure. Thank you guys, really lovely to see you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Lawrence, for coming on and sharing your uh, energetic and passionate brilliance with us. I so appreciate the work that you do. Links in the program notes for either of those articles or the social channels as we just discussed. And going back to earlier in the pod, Delisa, again, thank you for coming through. There's links in the program notes so you can follow her and her nutritional work on the interwebs as well. Ms. Bordeaux, what do we have going on next week on Bloodstream?
1: Uh, Next week is going to be great. We have Ryan Geelan. Not only is he like a big wig here at Believe Limited and one of my favorite people but he is the director of My Beautiful Stutter. I'm sure you guys have seen My Beautiful Stutter on our social channels or like got a whiff of it or something but Ryan Geelan's documentary My Beautiful Stutter is uh, on Discovery Plus and he's going to join us to talk a little bit about the film and what the reaction has been so it'll be great so make sure that you join us next week.
0: I also got my favorite text so far about My Beautiful Stutter a day or two ago. Somebody said, it is now my favorite basketball movie. And if you have seen it, you know why they're saying it. And if you haven't, you can sign up for a free trial of Discovery Plus if you check out Discovery Plus. So do that, watch My Beautiful Stutter and then you'll get the joke. So thank you, Amy, for the preview of next week. Again, thank you to Lawrence and to Delisa uh, and to the entire Bloodstream team for making this podcast happen. Thank you all for listening. And with that, that is all. For this episode. Thank you to Takeda, the presenting sponsor of the Bloodstream podcast. Remember bleedingdisorders.com to learn more. And if you have a bleeding disorder or health topic, you would like to hear us discuss more if there is an expert or a guest that you are just dying to hear from. If you want to inquire about the casting opportunities for Bloodstream or Believe Limited's narrative and docu-styled podcasts and video series and films and animation projects, and Amy and I are casting about 42 things right now, so you can email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com or connect with Bloodstream Media on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or you can follow Amy or myself on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Amy?
1: Yeah, well, you can follow Patrick on LinkedIn. I'm there, too.
0: (sighs) Almost. Okay. Uh, Shout out to all the committed uh, LinkedIn users out there. Check out the program notes for this episode in your podcast player or on bloodstreammedia.com where you will find links and information related to the stories and segments featured on this episode. I am your host, Patrick James Lynch.
1: And I am your other host, Amy Board.
0: And until next time, take self care of yourself. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.